Father, we come to you now as Mark has just prayed that we would be shaped by your word. We are, we are a people shaped by your word, but we also know that while we have, I invite so many other things in my life to shape me. <laughs> and I am prone to stand above your word and allow it to challenge me some places and not to others instead of standing below your word and being shaped by it. So in spite of our frailty and tendency to do that very thing, would you overcome that? Would you speak to us now in and through your word that we may be shaped by it? Holy Spirit, do what you do so well in shaping us as your people in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing on in our series in this ninefold description of what the, we, has come to be called the fruit of the Spirit. On the front of your bulletin, there's a fruit with, uh, in red this week, goodness. That's what we're looking at in the, to remind you. And we'll read, a, we'll read the text from Mark later, but we'll get into the sermon a little bit. Galatians 5 says this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Goodness. If you are in Christ by faith, if you are a Christian, the Spirit of God who dwells in you has a desire that is to cultivate reality in your life. This is the life of Jesus cultivated in our life. Not so that we look identical to each other, but so that Christ is impressed in our life so that we become the fullness of who we've been created to be, but in Christ. And part of that is what the scripture here calls goodness. Goodness. There is an aspect of goodness in the New Testament which narrowly defined means sort of generosity and integrity. This does mean that, but it means much more than that, I think. And I want to sort of step back and take the broader scope of Scripture to see what is the Spirit's intention for you in developing goodness in your life, in my life. Kind of getting at this question, what is the good life? What is the good life? In 2010, there's a Nobel Prize winning behavioral economist and psychologist named Daniel Kahneman wrote the book Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. If you've ever read it, it's a fantastic book. Long book with a title called Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. Very long book. But anyway, Kahneman and his team did research and found that the happiness part of the good life, the good life can be purchased actually, Kahneman believed. Research found that in 2010, if you had an income of $75,000 a year, you could be considered to consider yourself living the good life. You could be happy. Now to adjust for inflation, that's an income of about $105,000 a year. So Kahneman, according to Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winning uh, behavioral economist, $105,000 a year, friends, you have the good life. And some of you are saying, oh, good. Some of you might be saying, oh, I'll get there someday. Some of you might be saying, look, I'm there. I think Kahneman's nuts, All right? Some of you are saying, wait, this has nothing to do with money. The good life has to do with relationships and aspirations and goals and the freedom to pursue those goals. And that might be right also. And if you ask that question and say that, you're getting at the problem with the word good. In English, it just kind of means everything. It can mean a lot of things. In fact, it can mean so much that like a lot of words, it can mean everything. It can run the risk of meaning nothing. 
right? When we can have a good God, a good marriage, a good pen, and a good donut, we have to ask the question, what does this good mean? It has to mean something more than just a little bit better than average. We can use it to mean like you have terrible things, bad things, neutral things, good things, and terrific things. Does good mean just a little bit better than average? Is good like B, B plus? Is that what good means? A little bit better than neutral. Well, the truth is when we let the Bible speak for itself about what good means, a different picture emerges. And I will tell you at the beginning, this will be challenging for some of us. Because when we use good in English, we mean something different often than the scripture does by the word good. So I'll tell you that up front, and that's where we're going. And what we're seeing today, and the inside of your insert here, sort of in the middle there, under the, the good life, is this. The Holy Spirit cultivates a lived-out conviction in the people of God. That life with Jesus in a wayward world is actually the good life. So the good life is not drifting with the wayward world, and it's not isolated from a wayward world. It is in a wayward world with Jesus. That's a good life. That's the case I want to make from Scripture today. So we might say it in a kind of a kind of a neat, organized way. The good life, as we're going to see, is a what we would call a delivered life. It's a life that's delivered to us. It's a life that's developed in us. And it's a life that requires some determination by us. It's delivered to us, developed in us, and it's a determined life. And I'm aware that there's a lot of te- there's been a lot of text in this series, a lot of Bible text. We're in the seventh of ten sermons. And so basically these are what we call topical sermons, which we almost never do in New City. We usually take one big passage and just work our way through it. But we've been taking one passage and letting each word of the passage sort of be the, the, the subject of the sermon And then the problem with preachers doing that, we just make stuff up. Like, to me, goodness means this, right? Um, That's dangerous. The reason there's so much text in these is because we want to take each of these words and sort of locate it in the bigger storyline of Scripture and let the fullness of Scripture pull it through. That does mean we're looking at a lot of Bible passages in each of these sermons. So if you're just visiting recently within the last six or seven weeks, please know this is not normal. It's just normal for now and for the next couple weeks. And so let's first look at this idea that the good life is a life delivered to us by another, not created by us. It's delivered to us, not created by us. Uh, On the back of your insert, and I'll encourage you to turn there because we're going to work through some text. And if you're just listening and not reading it, it's going to get easy to get lost here. I want to walk through a little bit of history of goodness in the Bible. A little bit of history of goodness. Of course, there's the idea of good in Scripture is a cluster of ideas around the concept, but I think this gets at it. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Now, pause. This, should be, this is perhaps familiar text to you. This is right at page one of the Bible. God creates out of nothing. It's formless and void. It's, it's uh, wilderness and waste. And God creates. 
and he sees that it's good. Not like, oh, how about that? It's good. He beholds the goodness of original creation. He sees that it's good. Theologian Francis Schaeffer says this good here means he sees that it's aligned. He beholds that his creation is aligned with and conforming to him. That's what that word good means. It's the Hebrew word tov. Tov. In English, it's, you see it as T-O-V or sometimes T-O-B, but Tov, the word good, it means aligned with and conformed to God himself. So he creates, makes the light and says, Tov. But then there's this, there's a, this literary pattern. This is a little nerdish, but you're a lot of nerds here. So check this. Verse three, God said, let there be light. Verse four, and God saw that the light was good. And then verse 10, and God saw that it was good. And day three, verse 12, and God saw that it was good. And day four, and God saw that it was good. And day five, verse 21, and God saw that it was good. In verse 25, there's a summary statement of the first five days. And God saw that it was good. And God makes the pinnacle of creation, man and woman, male and female. And then he looks back and in verse Uh, 31, it says, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So he's like, it's tov, 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 very tov. God's looking at creation, he's like, good. It's all aligned with me. It's it's in uh, my will. I delight in it. It is good. That's what good means from page one, sentence one of the Bible. And it's closely related Sorry, we're still in the nerd hole for a second. Uh, It's closely related to the biblical concept of shalom that we talk about here sometimes, wholeness and fullness. And so it's like enough tov leads to shalom. So if you think about like an orchestra, like when the strings all play together, you're like, it's when they're they're tight, they're, they're just right on together. You're like, that's good. That's tov. That's tov. And the percussion, that's tov, right? And the woodwinds, oh, that's tove. And, and the brasses together, that's tove. And all that tove together makes this great orchestra. And we say, that's shalom. So all these good things together are created in their, in their ways to work together to create this comprehensive reality of wholeness. And that God calls, it's good. It's good. So the original design that God saw was good, 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 and very good. I didn't have this in your insert, but in Genesis 2.9, we have this phrase. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good, tov, and evil, ra, twisting away. So the tree of knowing what it means to be conformed to God and twisted away from God. And so you got this literary thing going, and God saw, and God saw, and God saw, and God saw. The next saw is this in Genesis 3. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Right? So if you know the biblical storyline, this ushers in the evil, the twisting into the good. And things descend. And the next time we have the phrase, and God saw, it was this in Genesis 6. 
Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God saw that the earth was corrupt. Not good. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. He could no longer look at it and say, it's tov, it's good. The good had been fractured. Corruption had set in. Twisting away had happened. Now, this doesn't mean people were as bad as they possibly could be. But they're cut off from the good. And now we can talk of good only in relative terms. Like if you have an extreme illustration. You have two people drifting alone in treading water in the Pacific Ocean 2,000 miles from anybody and nobody knows they're there. And one person's got two minutes left of treading water before they go under. And the other person's got six minutes left of treading water before we go under. By comparison, the one with six minutes is in good shape. Both of them are in really bad trouble. Both of them are cut off from life and from hope and from a future. Now, you could say, well, that one's going to live three times as long as the other. Wouldn't you want to live three times as long as somebody else? Yes, but it's only a relative statement. Good is a relative statement now that we've all been cut off from the good by the twisting of evil and sin that's come into our world. This is the biblical storyline of good, right? The way we use the word good is almost always comparative. Like, so this is a Signo DX pen. Uh, I'm a little bit of a pen nerd. I use the blue-black because it's a really good pen. And all I mean is it's a little bit better than a Bic. It's a comparative statement. That's how we use the, way, the phrase good. But it's not how the Bible uses it from the, from the beginning. And so we see it picked up in the Psalms, Psalm 14. It's very sober about what humanity's like. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have been corrupt. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And somebody could say, well, some people do good things. And the Bible would say, yeah, like the person who's got six minutes left. Yeah, relative to others, that's good. But that's not what we're talking about. Apart from the, the initiating work of God, this is saying there, everyone is cut off because we're twisted away. And just in case we're not clear on that, the New Testament picks this up in this charge to all humanity in Romans 3. Paul writes this, the Apostle Paul writes, for we have already, this is on the back of your insert also, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. No one does good, not even one. And so the Scriptural teaching, the only one left who is good is God alone. Hence, Psalm 119 and a lot of others like it. I just, like, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of phrases like this. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. You are good, Lord. You are good. Now, 
I call a little bit of a timeout, and I realize that there is a knee-jerk reaction in our culture at this time to call God good. Because a typical sort of unbelieving, uh, if you go to the, the popular, the unbelieving popularizers like a Richard Dawkins or a Neil deGrasse Tyson or all that kind of stuff, they'll very smugly say, look, how can a, there's evil in the world and God is supposed to be good. How can a good God allow evil? Clearly there's no such thing as God because a good God would never allow evil. This is very, actually a very old question. And I, uh, Mark Moss had prayed for Bob Schultz earlier. I'm going to refer you mostly to Bob, who is a, literally a professional apologist, one who makes a defense for the faith. But this has a, there's, there's a practical response to this, a philosophical response to this, and then just a personal one. Let me just briefly outline them, and then I encourage you to talk to Bob later. Sorry, Bob, I didn't talk to Bob before this. So here's the practical response to that. How can a good God allow evil? Answer, yeah, he actually knows more than we do. He, he knows more than I do. He knows how the story ends. He knows details about tomorrow that I don't know and that you don't know. Has anything bad ever happened to you that turned out to be, oh, I see why that's happening? We only know that it's bad because we assume that we know what tomorrow brings. We don't know that. God does. He knows more than we do. We don't know the end of the story, but he does. The philosophical pushback on that is this. How can a good God allow evil? It's something like this. How do you even know what good and evil is without God? Seriously. I mean, we're just, without something that's greater than us, that is personal, that is moral, that never changes and who judges, we are just making up what good and evil is. How do you know it's good? As Tim Keller quipped one time, there have been cultures in this world that thought they should serve their neighbor's dinner and other cultures that thought they should serve their neighbors for dinner. Who's to say which one is right without a God who judges and who never changes? It's just like consensus at that point. If we can get enough people to agree with us, we must be right. There was a, I remember in college, there was some fraternity that had a shirt on the back of it that said something like 40,000 men can't be wrong. I guess they're all, there are 40,000 people in the fraternity across the country. I'm like, that's the stupidest shirt I've ever seen. Like, of course 40,000 people could be wrong, men or otherwise. Um, like if one can be wrong, 40,000 can be wrong, and 40,000 agreeing on something doesn't make it right. Go to South Korea and ask a few questions about the rest of the world. Like, yeah, there's millions of people who are wrong together. It doesn't mean that wrong together makes you right. <laughs> We're just making up wrong and right without appealing to a God who's personal, moral, and never changes. Other, in other words, you can't even know what good is without God. You can't know what evil is without God. Now, that's not very satisfying. It's just a philosophical challenge to say, that's not a real question. But here's the personal response. That God only permits evil that he has already agreed to overcome at great personal cost to himself. God only permits evil that he has already at great personal cost to himself agreed to overcome for his glory and for your good. But what about, but what about, what about, about? okay, God's smarter than us. He knows the rest of the story. I don't know the rest of the story. Here's what we do know. He personally entered into the story. He's not far off. He 
personally experiences evil by taking our sin on his shoulders and being subject to the powers and principalities of evil in this world. Okay, that's okay. That was a timeout. Now we're back in the game. This brings us to the scripture reading for today. This may be the latest we've ever gotten to a scripture reading in a sermon. So uh, the first four people I asked to read scripture weren't going to be here. So I gave up and stopped asking. But here's what we're going to try to do. This is is an attentiveness task for you. We're going to read this together. It's going to be Mark chapter 10 in the inside of your bulletin. And uh, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to read God's word together. Here's what's going to happen. You are going to be Jesus. You need to read the parts where Jesus would read. So you have to be attend. Uh, you have to be paying attention. The first quote is not Jesus. This is the, the young man who comes to him. So you read the Jesus parts. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, And he said to them, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good work, by the way. (laughs) Jesus didn't correct this man because he was wrong. He wanted him to see how right he actually was. He comes and says, good teacher. That wasn't actually a phrase that was used to address rabbis. That was an honorific phrase. This man was coming with great admiration and fidelity to Jesus. It was deeply honorable address. It was a very humble and reverent approach. But Jesus loves this man to tell him the truth, enough to tell him the truth. Like, a humble, reverent approach isn't enough. It's not what I'm looking for. If I'm good, Jesus says, if I'm the good, he challenges this young man. You take what you actually consider the good, which at the end we know was his wealth because he had much possessions, and you submit it, you bring it under the good. He's actually calling this man to worship. Take your glory and submit it to my glory. And the man would not. Only God God alone is good and Christ, he's not saying I'm not good. He's saying that, yes, you are right. I am good, but you're not seeing it fully. Over the years, I've had the privilege, and I do think it's a privilege to do funerals and weddings for many unbelieving families, just because I'm in the neighborhood and I'm not a Catholic priest. And so if somebody's not Catholic and they're not a believer, they kind of find me eventually. And I do consider it a privilege. I, I mean, in fact, I would rather do a funeral than a wedding because people are attentive. 
in a wedding, people are just thinking about their wedding that they had or the one they want to have or why they don't have one, right? So the people aren't really there. And there's a lot of pressure in a wedding, let me tell you. Um, I married some of you, you know. Okay. And I'm willing to do funerals for unbelievers and I want to be sensitive and I want to be comforting and I want to be clear about the gospel. Well, that is a challenging mix sometimes, right? But you know, it's okay. I don't mind that. I've considered part of my calling. Sometimes, on multiple occasions, I sit down with family all the time before the funeral and they're in sorrow and I want to be sensitive, right? They've lost a loved one. There's been times a family of an unbelieving person will say, I just want you to communicate how good he was. Or just, you know, just tell how good of a woman she was. She was a good woman. And I know what they mean in English. I do. And I will be delicate and I will be sensitive. And some of you might be aghast at this, but I will not say that. I can't. I know what the scripture says. That none is good, but God alone. I know what they mean. He was better than most. That's not what scripture means when it talks about good. Now, to put a finer point on it, apart from Jesus, you are not looking at a good man. Apart from Jesus, I am not a good man. Maybe I'm better than some apart from Jesus. Only by relative terminology of good. Apart from Jesus, we got to embrace this before we can embrace the goodness of it. Apart from Jesus, I'm not looking at any good people. Okay? If that's offensive to you, please just say, I'm speaking as the Bible speaks. <laughs> so the Bible would also say, I'm not looking at any good people. Um, and that's actually going to be good news here in a second. How does the, cult, the spirit cultivate goodness then? A change happens. This is such good news. Colossians 1, it's in your insert. The first point is the longest point today, don't worry. Paul writes his church in Colossae, praying for them. He says, so from the day we heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. And here's the money verse. For he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you think it's bad news that I said, I'm not looking at any good people, that's because we are still in the business of making ourselves good. But the gospel is actually in Christ. You're uprooted from one kingdom called the kingdom of darkness where you make yourself good and brought over here and transferred into and planted into the kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus Christ, the one who is good. And now in union with him, and I say this carefully, but I want to say it clearly, in union with Christ, you are good. For his sake 
and his alone and not because of yourself, but it is real. It is real. In Jesus, we get our life back, guys. In Jesus, we become good again. It's part of the beautiful news of the gospel. And I know that many of our memories are rooted in the kingdom of darkness and it is really hard to believe that sometimes. We keep drifting, drifting, drifting. We'll get to why that is in a second. But the fundamental reality about you in Christ is that you share in his goodness, not because of yourself, but because of him. So on one hand, you're not, apart from Christ, you're not looking at a good person. On the other hand, you can never look at me apart from Christ. Now you can, but it doesn't matter. I can't be apart from Christ and neither can you if you're in him. It is a delivered goodness, a delivered life. And I just want you to know, if you're not a Christian yet, that's on offer. Jesus isn't offering to make you a little bit better. It's much better news than that. He's like, I want to bring you out of this kingdom of darkness and plant you in a new place with a new life. How does that happen? Well, we saw, this is our, one of our navigational passages for this whole sermon series, 2 Corinthians 3. When one, it's, it's there on that first page. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all now with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the spirit. When we look at Jesus, he opens our eyes. He, when we look at him and say, he is glorious. There is a glory in him that is nowhere else that I gladly submit all the other small glories of my life to. Then we're moved from one kingdom to another. And in that kingdom, that, uh, that goodness is then developed in our life by beholding him in the same manner over and over and over. That's the second point here. There is a good life. The good life is a developed life in us. But it's not until we've been brought into that world. Uh, we had our family Thanksgiving a couple weeks ago, and our kids are, so we have adult kids, and three of them are married, so we don't want to fight with the, like, are you going to this, you know, this side of the family? We just do it early. It's great. It's easy. They all come. They're all young and athletic, and they want to have a pickleball tournament this time. Okay, I'm no longer young and athletic. But in my mind, I'm still 21. So we were brought into the world. I never, me and my wife had never played pickleball before. We were brought into the world of pickleball. Now, we have a lot of development left to do. <laughs> so next Thanksgiving, we don't get spanked so bad by our children in pickleball. It's embarrassing. My knees still fill it because you have to go back and forth really quickly. Um, when we're two weeks out, but we're brought into the world of it. Now there's a development that can happen. We are learning to play pickleball. We are learning goodness by the Spirit once we've been brought in and changed from it into a new dominion of the good. That's the whole point of the idea around spiritual fruit. It's organic. It takes time. God is about process. We already saw it in the Genesis 1 account. Six days of creation. Now, some people, there's a little bit of argument about how many days, how long were those days. Some people believe it's a literal 24-hour days. I'm not that people. Some people believe it's longer. I'm that people. It doesn't matter. Even if you believe it's six 24-hour days, the question is, why did it take God so long to create? Why does he need six 24-hour days to create? Can he do it all at once? Yes. Why does, he, why does it take him so long to create good things? I don't know. He's a process God. 
He likes to take time on good things. Jesus takes on flesh. That's what he celebrated Christmas time. He waits 30 years before he steps into his ministry. Was he not perfect that whole time? Was he not obedient and faithful? Yes. Why did it take so long? God takes a long time with good things. The fruit in our life is a good thing. God takes a long time with it. If you're still growing and still developing, good news. That's exactly what the picture is about. Cultivated fruit takes time. And by God's grace, over time, that fruit gets better and sweeter. If not, so this, I mean, talk to you Christians who've been walking with Jesus for a while. If the fruit in our life is no longer developing or getting better or sweeter, this is probably a good sign that some pruning needs to happen. Or in this case, that the goodness of other things is beginning to crowd out the goodness of Jesus. It's an invitation back to him. This is also the bedrock of a a well-known passage in Ephesians 2. I put it in there in your insert. For by grace you have been delivered, saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, right? So one dominion into another. You've been delivered into the kingdom. Verse 9, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Not our own goodness apart from Jesus, but Jesus' goodness. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, good, good works, activities, not just like a little bit better than somebody else, but works of a different kind in the alignment with God, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Walk, definite making progress, takes time. In many ways, just stepping back, goodness that's being developed in us is being delivered into the kingdom of Jesus and simply walking with him in this life. That's what goodness is. And this is together, we're doing it together. It's a plural word. And the work of the spirit is to deepen that conviction that this is right. Over time, as we walk with Jesus, what tends to happen is we lose the taste for what this world says is the good life. And we have a deepening conviction that like, we'll take those things or if they go away, so be it. But walking with Jesus in the middle of a wayward world, that's the good life. That's the life he died to give me. That's the life that I get back in Jesus. The life I was originally made for. So if you are in Christ and you do not feel that this fruit is being born in your life in an evident manner, do not hear me say you just need to work harder and do better. Do hear Jesus ask the question, right now, friend, what is your chief good? Where is your heart? And when we behold Jesus as where we see one by faith who says, I am with you right now. I know your temptation. I've been tempted in every way as you are, yet without sin, so I know how to help you. I've hidden you in myself. I actually am your chief good. Let's do this together. So I don't doubt that there are some here today who've walked with Jesus for many years who simply need to be called back. I get it. Sometimes we just need to say, Lord, would you prune off the dead things in my life? 
Help me to see where I'm just elevating other things to an equal place with you or higher than you. Just do that in my own heart. And I encourage you to pray that. Even during our communion time in a minute. Lord, prune me. Do that kind of work. I want to walk with you in what is good, that good life. And finally here, the good life is a life of determination. It's a determined life. Galatians 5, the bigger passage of the fruit of the Spirit. We don't read this most of the time, but look at the context in which the fruit uh, of the Spirit is born. Galatians 5, I'm not going to read the whole thing here, just the first half. The apostle Paul writes to the church in Galatia, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now, here's what the works of the Spirit are opposed to. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of angers, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is. So he's saying, look, God's working in you to bear this fruit, but here's the context. This crazy world you're living in in Asia Minor, Right? This isn't materially different than the world we live in today. It's not saying, I want you away from these things. I want you, he's saying, I want you to see all these. And in the midst of living in this chaotic world, let the Spirit bear fruit in you. There's, it requires a determination to do this. It is challenging. We have these natural inclinations of sin in our world that, that make it easy to wander, or even in our own self. We have the ease of North American culture that makes discipleship seem like a burden. Following Jesus is a burden. We have a, self, a culture of self-promotion that makes humility difficult. With a tribalizing impulse in our culture that calls us into anger. We have a sensuality in our culture that makes sexual faithfulness difficult. We have a wealth in our culture that makes generosity difficult, ironically. We have an advertising engine that drives coveting. It makes contentment difficult. And then your own life is uniquely challenging. Right? That's why there's this aspect of determination required for the bearing of the fruit of the Spirit. And it's not just out there. I didn't put this in your insert, but let me just read one passage from Romans 7 about Paul as a believer. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So there's principle in him that is still in rebellion against God. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. He sounds like he's got schizophrenia or MPD or whatever. But if you feel like that, you're in good company. Like I have a desire to do good because God has planned me in the kingdom of his beloved son. But I have all this this memory and identity developed from the kingdom of darkness and they're in conflict in my own body. And that's where the gospel calls us to remember who we are in Christ. You're rooted in him. You're grounded in him. And therefore, this final call here in Galatians 6, and let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. 
So then as we have opportunity to let us, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Why would he call this church to not grow weary? Because it's easy to grow weary in doing good. If I had thought about this a little bit earlier, which I didn't, last week we sang the old hymn, Come Thou Fount. And every time this comes up, I think about kicking this hymn to the curb forever because it's got a couple lines in it that nobody knows what they mean. So last week in the bulletin, I put some asterisks and like what do these things are. One is an Ebenezer. You know, like, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. We sing that, and I know everybody's like, I have no idea what I'm talking about. When Ebenezer is a stone of remembrance. But there's another line in there that says, Oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let your goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Like, what's a fetter? It's a shackle. We are shackled to the goodness of Jesus. And he himself is the shackle. He is that chain. The, Jesus has come and tracked us down in his goodness. None is good but God alone. Jesus himself. And he has taken that goodness and put it on full display for me and for you and those who by nature are not good by going to the cross and taking our twistedness on his shoulders and substituting his goodness in our place so that we can now stand in him and say, in Christ, I have goodness returned to me because of him. This last year, Daniel Kahneman, the researcher who determined that the good life was $105,000 adjusted for uh, inflation, after COVID, after all this stuff, got so much pushback on that. People are so miserable, it can't be the case. So his team did some more research. And you can read it all, or just let me give you the too long, didn't read version. It's this. Daniel Kahneman said in 2023, just kidding, it's now over $500,000 a year for the good life. I don't know if that's the case or not. I probably will never know if that's the case or not. Here's what I know. If the good life is something that's up to us and it's held by our hands and that we're chasing, it will either always be just beyond our grasp. Ha ha, about $105,000, $500,000. Or it'll be something we grab onto and feel like we have to hold onto with all of our life. And it will wreck us. But if the good life is found in Jesus Guys, it's something that's delivered to us and held on to by him for us as he holds on to us. You're free in Christ. You're made new again. He's brought you into a good place and promised as you walk with him to develop a goodness in you. You will be frail, you will faint, you will find in yourself a disinclination to that and we are brought back again and again to the table. Jesus' goodness displayed for us. We celebrate communion on a weekly basis in the New City community.